Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, my little baby doll. Hey, Puddin. We are going to read now Starlog Magazine, number 5, May 1977. We're going to focus in on the Star Trek articles in this magazine. All right. Yes, Starlog always had some Star Trek issues and some articles. They were great. And on the cover, it says, Star Trek Centered in Texas. We know that Star Trek has been controversial over the years. So we're going to discuss some of those features. From the Bridge. This is by Kerry O'Quinn, the then editor-in-chief. He makes mention in this front-page article, Our staff columnist, David Gerald, exemplifies the science fiction success story as much as anyone. When, at a tender age of 23, he had his first television script turned into a Star Trek episode. Is there anyone who doesn't know it was the trouble with Tribbles? He was merely turning his most enjoyable hobby into a solid career. So this magazine is focusing on a lot of behind-the-scenes issues, and that is something that's amazing when you think about it. David Gerald, 23 years old, not a professional writer per se. Sold his first script to, to Star Trek. That was basically his first um, writing gig. You could almost say... Fan fiction became science fiction reality. Or, as far as something that goes as far as science fiction canon. And, and also, David Gerald wrote a book. You know, it was called The Trouble with Tribbles, which was about the making of that episode. And it, it was very interesting. So, so yeah, he has a great story to tell about that in his book. And we're great. We're just, we're just so uh, happy that he had this, his own column in Starlog, too. No doubt about it. Communications. These are letters to Starlog. Listen for Starlog. I like your magazine because of its variety of articles and the enthusiasm and professionalism with which they are written. I plan to spread the word about your magazine to all my friends who like Star Trek and science fiction. On my CB, I can reach a lot of people. Incidentally, my handle is Galileo, our base. Therefore, is the shuttlecraft base in our mobile unit is... Shuttlecraft Mobile. That's from Vicki Harvey of La Mesa, California. Now, that is 70s. Talking through a CB radio about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> By any other name. This is to tell you how much the Spring Ford Federated Association of Star Trekkers enjoys Starlog. We do have one item to which we take great offense. The label Trekkie. That term more correctly applies to teeny bopper groupies running around after Mr. Spock's ears. That's from Joseph Kessler, Rotesford, Pennsylvania. Now, what do you think about that term, Trekker versus Trekkie? I always preferred Trekkie back then. I mean, now I think it, it, it has kind of changed and I don't, <laughs> like, I don't really mind either term, but, um, I, what I got from it, Back then was reading uh, the best of Trek because they ins they explained it in there that the Trekkers are the more intelligent fans, the Trekkies are the ones like that person said that chase Mister Spock's ears, the ones that are a little too out there. So am I a little bit of both? Would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might be a little bit of both. <laughs> and 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 the words the the people's perception of those words has changed too because if you heard that like. Some people think that one of those words only applies to the people who are fans of the original series, and the other one, and, you know, I forget which word is which, but some people think the other word applies to the fans that started with, with Next Gen or something. And I thought, that's such a weird definition. That's It's a weird perception of how those, I don't know, somehow ideas have changed over the years. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I like Trekkie. I've always viewed myself as a Trekkie, even if... Some might consider it derogatory. I'm not going to hide my fandom. I love Star Trek. Well, another thing, too, is because Trekkie, the word came came out of, it came from the media. And the media at the time, 
did use it to 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 be insulting to say these people are crazy mm. and and it was the fans themselves that came up with the word trekker to call themselves you know people who are not crazy like the media wants to portray us interesting so yeah that's that's the origin reaching out i am an inmate at the kansas state penitentiary in lansing kansas i have been trying to find out where i could write to nichelle nichols who plays lieutenant uhura on star trek I read your article on her, and I must say that I enjoyed it very much, so I thought that I might be able to get her address from you. Your help would be greatly appreciated. Raymond Lee Smith, Lansing, Kansas. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, you know what this reminds me of? Because, I mean, these days, even on Facebook, like like there's just there's this Voyager fan group on Facebook, and someone put... put um, a post on there that said, I love Janeway. At Kate Mulgrew, would you please uh, message me? Something like that. And it's like, you know, Kate Mulgrew's not in that group. That's just a fan group. <laughs> so, so, yeah, even back then, people thought, like, that their favorite magazine could give them an address, which in this case they, they did because Starlog would – there was an issue where they gave all general And that addresses. was what Starlog's yeah. response was, is look at our address guide right to the studio. Right, Exactly. I'm not going to give out her personal address. <laughs> it's not how it works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Another note from readers. In your second issue, you describe James Blish as the late British science fiction writer. I was not aware of his death. Can you please elaborate on what happened? That's from Janice Carlson, Old Bridge, New Jersey. James Blish died of cancer in his native England roughly two years ago, much to everyone's sorrow. And we love the James Blish adaptations. Well, some of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he did, I mean, he, he wrote adaptations of all the, um, of all the original episodes. And it was great to have those back then because what, what else did we have? I mean, where we could get like, I mean, a, a very detailed description of all the episodes. I mean, pretty much, you know, following along with what happened in each one because you couldn't buy, you know, the videos back then. Mm -hmm. So it was great to have his books. Now, this is an interesting letter that was written. It's from Susan Sackett, assistant to Gene Roddenberry. There is a flyer currently being mailed to fan club leaders from a group in Houston, Texas, calling itself Stardate 1977. This group offers Super 8 and 16mm films of each Star Trek episode for sale. This operation is not authorized by Paramount or Desilu, despite their statement to the contrary. They are running an illegal operation. There is considerable question whether or not they even have the films. We urge you to boycott these people. Yeah, that's interesting. First of all, that Susan Sackett thought Starlog was important enough to, to write them to tell to tell them, you know, tell your readers about this. <laughs> it's true. But um but as I was just saying, like you couldn't buy videos back then. So now these people are so we so there were some people that were trying to sell the actual film of Star Trek episodes apparently. And she's saying that's illegal and yeah, I bet I bet they did if if they even had it, it was illegal. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log Entries Shatner's College Tour About 35 lucky colleges around the country were recently treated to William Shatner's one-man personal appearance show. The handsome Star Trek captain opened by reading a Ray Bradbury poem called Earthbound, which he aptly said referred to all of us. Shatner then asked his enraptured audience to join him on a journey through inner and outer space as seen through a history of science fiction writings. What do you think about that? That that was great for Shatner, probably. I mean, yeah, so he did a college tour. And the thing is, I think this was about the time that Gene Ronberry was also doing a college tour. Um, but, but, in the, but in the case of Shatner, he actually, it says he read stories, which he would have been great at. That's the thing. I mean, yeah, I would love to have seen that. So, so now, you know, Shatner has done tours where he just tells stories. Of, of his own experiences and things. But, yeah, but doing something where he acts out books and everything, that would have been cool to see. I find the era after the cancellation of the show, so from 1969 to just before the motion picture, 1979, I find that a fascinating era because Star Trek was very popular amongst the diehard fans. It was popular in syndication, 
but the actors themselves were still trying to figure out what they're going to do post Star Trek. Because with the exception of Leonard Nimoy, most of them didn't really have careers. I mean, Leonard Nimoy went on to Mission Impossible, and then he did some other things. But overall, they were meant to portray the characters in Star Trek, and it just took 10 years for that to happen. It, it was hard for them to find other jobs. Yes. And they, and, and they did do convention appearances. That was about all that, that, uh, they could do, but it was something and it kept the fans, it kept the fans going too. Attacks on commercial TV. This talks about a PBS special that critiques the commercial networks entitled You Should See What You're Missing. And it talks about this special about how when you have commercial TV, because the advertisers have to pay so much for the commercials, they have to raise the price of the products that they're selling. So eventually, virtually everything that you buy is going to be a higher price because of the advertising system. But what's interesting for Star Trek fans is that there were a variety of television writers that were interviewed for the special, including Harlan Ellison, which he wrote for Star Trek. City on the Edge of Forever. Absolutely. For the past 10 years, Ellison has been saying most of the things that the PBS special had to say, but he didn't say it very politely. He has a variety of columns and newspapers and magazines during this time in 1977, and one of the reasons why he didn't like working on television is because the problems that he saw within the television industry. Well, I mean, we already know that Ellison was difficult. You know, you know, when he did, um, when he wrote City on the Edge of Forever, he didn't like that they did so many rewrites on the script and everything. So, yeah, so we know that he, he would have found it difficult. He's a to, critique of everything. Yeah. And, and he, because he was already a famous writer at this time, he had his ego. He wanted, you know, he, he thought people should do things his way. Enterprise naming unpopular. Gene Roddenberry asked President Ford not to name NASA's new space shuttle the Enterprise when the president called him on Star Trek's 10th anniversary with the good news. Roddenberry thought that the name should reflect the spirit of international cooperation as Earth's first reusable spaceship. President Ford had been on the receiving end of a massive mail campaign from Trekkers and bowed to the election year necessities. All right, now, what do you think about that? We, as fans, think that's exciting to have the space shuttle named Enterprise. How revealing is it that Gene Roddenberry wasn't thrilled with the idea? Yeah, that is interesting, and that's the first I've heard of that, just reading it in this article. It was like, oh, so Gene didn't want it. That is, yeah, that's amazing to think, because, well, well, the thing is that, you know, it doesn't say like he was, um, was he flattered, you know, that, that the fans, the fans voted that, that they wanted an Enterprise. I would have been one of those people who voted for the name Enterprise. The it, U.S. It Air Force Band was there playing the Star Trek theme multiple times during the ceremony. So there were a lot of people excited about this endeavor, but the Great Bird of the Galaxy wasn't. Uh, I wonder if he was just playing the humble part just to, hmm. just to be in the news, like just, just to act humble. That's a thought. Script problems on Trek film. So this was talking about the the new Star Trek movie, which came out in 1979, but at the time it was 1977, and they were just saying how it it was already going over budget for one thing, and and we already know it turned out to be one of the most expensive movies for that time. Now it never mentions it in Starlog, but from what we understand, this was the God thing. Right, the script that Gene Roddenberry was trying to push, and he was always fascinated with God stories, even though he was an atheist. But they were also talking. So it says in this in this little blurb under in the log entries about um, a ninety-minute TV special. They they had that idea instead of doing a theatrical film, and then they also said they gave Gene Roddenberry the the green light to do six episodes a year of Star Trek, which, which I think would have been pretty cool. That way, it would trim the fat. You wouldn't have to have a full season and have filler episodes. Just six really fantastic episodes. Well, that's just about what they're doing now with the shorter seasons. It's exactly. But it's, it's, for back then though, you just wouldn't think, I mean, because nobody did it back then. That was then. unheard of right. back then. 
So it's interesting that that was one of the ideas that was being tossed around. And I kind of, it was probably because of budget, because Star, Star Trek was so expensive, and that, so they could do it with, with just six episodes. But they never did. It, there was so much talk, and of course we know eventually it became the motion picture, but, but at this time there were, there were, they had so many different ideas in the works. State of the Art. A Column of Opinion by David Gerald. All right, now what did you think about this column? It's a variety of points that he makes about especially the animated series, this episode, The Magics of Megas 2. I, I like the, the point that he made because he was saying that it's about um, being able to speak up for yourself and having rights even if even if your beliefs are different. And the thing is, this whole this whole column that he wrote here makes it sound. It almost sounds like he's for religion, but I, I don't think he is really. But what he's for is for people to be able to to stand up for what they believe in, and um, and it, he's saying that it that TV should have opposing views, and he keeps saying that he kept going against that uh, NBC executive who did not want to rock the boat, did not want to um, have opposing views on his network, and so that's what David Gerald is is saying he's against here. He thinks that the TV should make people think. It should push people's buttons. And he, th- and he thinks that our audiences are intelligent enough to hear all sides and make their own decisions. And here's what it comes down to. The animated series episode, The Magics of Megas 2, was written by Larry Brody. It was aired on October 27, 1973. So this is essentially almost four years previous to this magazine being published. We could tell this was a Halloween episode that was popular at the time, so they made the antagonist more of a Satan-like creature for the Halloween time period. Well, but yeah, but even the name Lucian, you know he was supposed to be Satan. Absolutely. And the plot revolves around this devil-like alien in very much a Salem-like witchcraft trial. And apparently, some stations didn't feel comfortable airing this. And and it, you still see censorship today for other reasons. But that, yeah, that that was something that um that I'm glad some people were against even back then. You know, we we need to show all sides. We need to be able to to see these things. And and it was just a, a story. I mean, it was a cartoon. You know. Another episode that was edited or censored was the episode Bem that was written by David Gerald. The episode was a godlike creature wishes the crew off the Enterprise. Go in peace, my children. Now becomes go in peace. Because the part that said my children, some stations felt that it made a godlike creature on this animated series. I didn't realize the animated series was edited so often, or banned so often on regional stations. We always hear the legend about Plato's stepchildren being censored in the South, but we don't hear about these little details about the animated series, even lines from the animated series being edited out. They must have wanted, for one, to protect the children, because they thought it was just children watching these. And But yeah, but just for religious reasons. I mean, not even, like, not the social thing of the, the Kirk and Uhura kissing, but just because they don't want someone else to be to be viewed as, as a god in a cartoon, and they don't want the idea that that Satan might be uh, might be liked in a cartoon. And it makes the mention in this article that these religious groups that made these edits they did win because the vice president of NBC said we will not take a moral position. He he just thinks it, it's stupid and. And we, we sort of agree, like, 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 just let the people see it and make their decision. He closes by saying, So I resent the networks arbitrarily restricting the freedom of expression because it might make someone angry. It might also make someone else care. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and the executive saying that, that he would receive a lot of letters. He doesn't want to receive letters. I mean, you, you know, it, it's, it, people are going to write letters if they care about it. Future conventions. 
Baltimore Mini Trek Con, March 26, 1977, in Baltimore, Maryland. Star Trek Philadelphia, July 15th through 18th. Star Trek America, September 2nd through 5th, 1977, in New York City. And back then there were more Star Trek, you know, just Star Trek conventions than there are now. Here's an advertisement. Star Trek fans should be reading Trek, the magazine for Star Trek fans. Yes, if you love the voyages of the Enterprise and crew, then Trek, fandom's leading Star Trek magazine, is for you. In each issue of Trek, you will suddenly be transported into a future by such articles and features such as Star Trek miniatures, behind the scenes, cast superstars, animated Star Trek, the girls of Star Trek, and much, much more. I mean, this was a great magazine. Now, did you ever see that one in stores? I, I never saw it. The, my first exposure to this were these pocket books. They were called The Best of Trek. Right, that's what I had. Yeah. And I remember like reading them saying, like, wow, I was so amazed saying, there's others like me that really like Star Trek. And I knew that they were reprints of a magazine, but I had no access to this Trek magazine until years later as an adult I found back issues of it. Yeah, I, I used to collect the the books, the best of Trek, because those were awesome. I mean, reading all of those articles, it was, and that was like where I got most of my Star Trek knowledge back then besides uh, from Starlog. But but I did, um, yeah, I did order one of those back issues of Trek magazine when I, I probably ordered it from Starlog when I, you know, went seeing an ad in there and it was like, oh, now I can get oh, this. Oh, nice. You got it in the mail? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Audiorama. Starlog presents the worlds of science fiction on records. And there are quite a few Star Trek records back in 1977, such as the book and record sets entitled Passage to Moab. Oh, those records that came with the book, <laughs> like a comic book, and you, you read along as you're listening to it. Exactly. And The cr the Crier in Emptiness. I had that one, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, I loved them. I, I mean, I could still hear... The, the, the sound of the Waul in my head. And we, we actually enjoy, in our collection, looking at the comic and, and listening to the records along with it. And it's so funny because during this time, they screwed up the pictures like Sulu was black and Uhura was white. And... They, they did a lot of the stuff wrong. And <laughs> like, they, they didn't care. I mean, they just, they uh, were just creating something to make money. CBS had zero quality control. They were just letting anything go by with the Star Trek logo on it. And they did have the the sound effects. They had music in the background. Now we're going to talk about more Star Trek censorship. This is an article entitled, Star Trek Censored in Texas. Editor's note. Star Trek was more than a TV adventure series. It was a series of adventures for Gene Roddenberry and the other production people involved. The final format of the show reflected a series of compromises between producers and network overseers. In fact, the persona of Mr. Spock, Trek's resident alien, was initially vetoed by the network powers. They thought he was too strange for audience identification. Roddenberry compromised by placing him in the background for the first few episodes. When the volume of fan mail made it clear that Spock was indeed being identified with, NBC learned to love Strange. Many of the episodes were concerned with the nature of God and the gods, the nature of man with morality, etc. Modern political systems were given close scrutiny, by way of analogy, in the episodes The Cloudminders. In The Paradise Syndrome, the concept of a heavenly messiah was explored, while the alternative factor was a serious examination of traditional morality and religious teachings. Although some of them were altered to conform with network policies, there was never an episode of Star Trek that suffered complete censorship, that is, until recently. So, this article talks about this Dallas station, KXTX-TV, a UHF station. Let's talk about it. So, they were, like, not so much about, about how Star Trek was... Um elevating God, because they didn't mind that, but they didn't like that, that Star Trek was elevating Satan. They were worried about the portrayal of Satan as perhaps uh, 
someone likable or or even say what what they used to call satanic powers they didn't want anything to promote that such as telekinesis out of body experiences taking over someone's body and when you break it down like that there's quite a few star trek episodes that fall into that category such as in the children's our leave wolf in the fold which are mentioned in this article mm-hmm. so i have to say though this television station is a Christian station. And I think that's kind of curious that they air Star Trek on a Christian station. It must have just been because it was popular at the time. Well, they did say that they tried to put in shows like Hogan's Heroes and Star Trek because they were hoping that people would flip the channels, stick with what they were watching, and then hopefully the next show after that, they'd watch the ministry shows. So it was by design that they put these secular shows in on a Christian station. They, they wanted to get different types of audiences, but yeah, they wanted to do it as a, a lead-in, like have something, mm-hmm. yeah, have something that might be different, that lead, the, but then the next show will be a Christian show, and they hope people will, will just leave it on the same channel and keep watching. But with Star Trek, we know that Star Trek forces you to think, and for stations like this and for belief systems like this, sometimes when you think critically about something, it probably will shake your foundations. But it is interesting that, that it brings up these kind of things because it still isn't... It, it's not it's not the kind of issues we have now. It's not what's controversial now, not the things that they are bringing up uh, in this article. So so the things that, they, that, they, that the station didn't like was the occult powers, such as in Where No Man Has Gone Before, when Gary Mitchell had, had these, we call them godlike powers with all the things he could do. And something like, as you mentioned, Dan, the children shall lead, where the the children could conjure up this angel that was almost more like like Satan. He killed the kids' parents. The lights of Zetar was banned because of possession. Right, mm-hmm. it was like demon possession. Return to tomorrow. I mean, you look at how many of these things were were banned. Parts of the menagerie, but the station did love the episode Bread and Circuses. Um, Brothers of the Sun, yes. <laughs> that, was, that was a Christian episode, and that's the one that, like a lot of fans have talked about, how did Gene Roddenberry, because we know he was an atheist, how did he let this one get by? And it must have exactly. just been... Exactly. Because, yeah, it must have been because he at this time he wasn't keeping as close a watch on all the episodes. Advertisement, movie, and television spaceships. It's Starlog's guidebook. Great book. Cover price two ninety five, and this is the era before the internet. So, anything with pictures, everyone wanted. Advertisement: science fiction miniatures, and it's a series of it's just lists of miniature ships for wargaming. Uh, a lot of Klingon ships, Tholian ships, Gorn ships. So, and we love Fossa and Starfleet. Battles and I mean those games are just amazing. Looking at the various ship classes, and so these ships were anywhere between a dollar and two fifty each for these little and they were small, tiny, right? were, tiny yeah. little ships. Yeah, fantastic. And classifieds to wrap things up. Star Trek poster by Kelly Freyus, only three dollars. Star Trek books, blueprints, magazines, convention booklets, etc. Free catalog. TK Graphics out of Baltimore, Maryland. Star Trek ID cards. Identify yourself as a Star Trek Starship Captain or Vulcan. Carry a phaser license. Beautifully printed. Set of five, only one dollar postpaid. Out of Staten Island, New York, April Publications. Gum card sets from Star Trek. Limited edition. 88 cards, 22 stickers for $14.95. Marvin Lang. Island Park, New York. I know when I when I order things like like as a child, and I would order things through the mail. Like I said, that Trek magazine. I mean, did you do you actually send cash in the mail? I did because I I didn't know any better. I would yeah, I would send cash. I send cash all the time and loose change. I would just have loose change in the envelope. <laughs> I mean. Wait, I remember putting change in there, but I would tape it to like a piece of cardboard. See, I didn't know you were supposed to do that back then. So. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but. I don't think I ever lost money in the mail, though. I think I always got what I ordered. Yeah. Yeah. we got to figure the mail system back then wasn't 
as inundated as it was not modern day. Yeah, like people that's just right. bought things from stores. It was a big deal to get something through the mail. I, I was excited ordering things through the mail. Like I couldn't wait for it to come <laughs> in. Yeah, it, but well, yeah, but you had to wait though because it was also slow. But yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Cholesterol levels of many Americans are too high, but for a group of people in New Jersey, cholesterol went down. They joined in a total dietary program to reduce cholesterol. Less fats, lean meats, egg and cheese substitutes, and highly polyunsaturated foods, including Promise Margarine. Promise is highly polyunsaturated. The results? Their average cholesterol level went down. Down significantly. And Promise tastes like butter. Promise. Starlog Magazine, issue number 6, June 1977. On the cover, it mentions Susan Sackett's Star Trek movie report, plus the TV animation story. $1.50 cover price. Communications. Nudity in Starlog? My least favorite feature in this issue of Starlog, that is issue number four, is your story, The Arena. Not so much the story as the artwork. When I opened the mag, I thought I had mistakenly picked up an issue of Playgirl. I weep for today's science fiction. Today's publisher feels he must display a naked body on the cover. I am personally shamed and embarrassed by such progress. The human form is such a beautiful creation of God. Why do we exploit it so? I feel also that you, as the publishers and editors, should remember that the young fans you cater to are human and subject to sexual problems, such as homosexuality. Does your artwork influence them? I write this not as an enemy, but as a fan of Starlog. Therefore, I feel it is my duty to warn you against nudity, whether it be male or female. Terry Melton of Fancy Gap, Virginia. Okay, now this is the painting of a naked man, and it was the original arena story as to which the Star Trek episode was based on. Now, what did you think about the naked man in that issue? The, I mean, it was just a drawing, and it was the way the way it was from the from the story because the story said that he was naked. Correct. The Star Trek iteration, Kirk beamed down, fully clothed. Right. But the they original story, yeah, the original story was guys buck naked, but it was a beautiful painting. I mean, the guys chiseled. I mean, most time when an artist makes a painting, any fantasy painting, it's going to be very muscular, lean, perfect body. I found it tasteful. I, I thought it was the, okay. The, the, I know. So some people are going to have problems with it, just like we were talking about the uh, problems with religion and Satanism. So, so some people have a problem with nudity, and in this case, it was it wasn't um, it wasn't full frontal nudity either. It's but, Boris Vallejo. Hey, Boris right. Vallejo, fantastic art. He's done many Star Trek covers. He he has done some of some the novels. Yeah, he did Star Trek, but I'm saying he also does fantasy women. I mean, he does Conan. do. Yeah, he he does do um, images with a, you know people with a lot of skin showing. He's used to doing that, but he is very artistic, and most people uh, don't really have a problem. It's like if if you don't want to look at it, just don't look. I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah, get over it. Yeah. I love Starlog's response. Uh, speaking about all the positive feedback that get, they got from that article, that this is the only one that complained about the artwork. The human form is indeed beautiful. And he speaks about Boris Vallejo. He's very talented. He's most known. And before a reader spends a great deal of time worrying about other people's sexual problems, he would do well to get his own house in order. Wow. <laughs> All so right, Star-Log you give it to him. him. Yeah. Flight testing the Enterprise. Now that all the hoopla and controversy surrounding its naming and rollout have abated, the Space Shuttle Enterprise will get down to business. It is being used to test the orbiter's vehicle ability for unpowered atmospheric maneuvering and landing. So uh, this time we have an artist's rendition of the Space Shuttle Enterprise and what it will look like on top of an airplane. 
man, that must have been awesome to see that during that time period in 1977. It was exciting just, just to know that, uh, that the space program was continuing and to know that, that in a way Star Trek was a part of it. Spock Jr. Boy Time Traveler. Now, this is one of the strangest news articles. And I had to look this up further to find out about it. And apparently this made national news. So it talks about this 24-year-old avid trekker. He has a collection of almost every episode on videotape. And you got to figure, this is 1977. How many people had VCRs in 1977? So obviously he's on the wealthier side. Patrick Lajko, he's an expert in designing and building computer systems. He's an accomplished pipe organist and one of the top five gymnasts in the country. He wanted to go back in time. That is, go back to high school. So what did he do? He went back to high school as an actual high school student at 24 years old. He forged paperwork to say that he was 16, changed his name, and went back to high school in Wichita, Kansas. And no one found out for months. He actually looked young enough, apparently, to, to get away with this. <laughs> I was dying to get out of school. I can't imagine wanting to go back. Yeah, that it, it really sounds crazy. He had a car with NCC 1701 on the side, so he was a super fan. And uh, so that's what he did. He went back to high school, but he got caught in December. They were questioning his superb gymnastic skills. <laughs> <laughs> it was because he was he had been a famous gymnast before that he got caught. And so he actually ruined it for the whole team because the whole team was disqualified because for X amount of months he was performing with them and the numbers were all off. You can't have a 24-year-old on a team against other high schoolers. Yeah. <laughs> How but, bizarre I mean, but, is okay, this? Okay, but it was a nice try. So he he was... He just wanted to go back to school. It just sounds so funny. But, but I love the part that he had NCC 1701 on the side of his car. I mean, I was nerdy enough just having a Star Trek symbol on my notebook. This this guy was <laughs> super nerdy, huh? I mean, he yeah, he put it out there. like Yeah, just driving by and people could see it. But that article didn't say... You know, that he, that he went back to school because he was a Star Trek fan or whatever. It, it just said something about time travel. Like maybe he liked time travel. But I mean, but going back to high school, that had nothing to do with Star Trek. In, he just was a mind. super fan. He, yeah, I mean, he, he was a super fan who happened to have done something crazy like going back to high school that had nothing to do with Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Just to put that out there. <laughs> just, I just had to say that part. Okay. It made New York Times. I mean, it was headline news around the country because it was bizarre. It was. And they had to hype it up by saying he's a Star Trek fan. It's like... If he was a baseball fan, no one would have made mention of it. But right, if you're a Star right. Trek fan, oh, you're, you're super crazy. You're a Trekkie. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I love this article. The Limits of Imagination, Animating Star Trek. Talks about how in 1973, Star Trek came back on the airwaves. As an animated series, but a very good animated I series. I love the animated series. I mean, I to this day, I love the animated series. I think, well, that style of artwork we grew up with. We're well, very Filmation comfortable was, with it. was already popular then. Sure it was. And they so they put out a lot of stuff. And this was just was just one of their many great shows. Absolutely, and they were around for a long time. Filmation, even well into the eighties. Yes, they were. And and what's great about that now, this article actually says that Filmation asked to do Star Trek. It was it wasn't the other way around, but they they saw something in Star Trek that they wanted to do. And which is a stroke of genius because you could do things with the animated form that you can never do in live action. So it was greenlit, and then and Dorothy Fontana, who who was um, one of the people who made the original series so great, she became the associate producer on this on this animated series, and basically she was the driving force behind it. Gene Roddenberry didn't have as much to do with it because I mean he put Dorothy in charge and let her run with it. And Dorothy is one of the unsung heroes of Star Trek. I mean, if Gene Roddenberry's the great bird of the galaxy, 
she's right up there in my eyes. Star Trek would not be the franchise that we know and love without her incredible input. She was a great writer. She did a lot for, I mean, of course, for for Spock and the Vulcans, but she also mm-hmm. was behind the scene on on most of the scripts. She had a hand in them and and did her her changes to make them even better. It speaks about which we know about the limits of television animation versus Disney theatrical animation. How they had to make one cell of just a body and then another cell of arm movements and another cell of lip movements because they couldn't have full animation because they didn't have the staff that Disney did. And especially at this time, Disney was considered the gold standard. And they mentioned Disney Studios numerous times in the article of how it would be unrealistic to make something like that on on television. But what makes Star Trek the animated series so incredible are the stories. Well, Disney was just, you know, they were a movie studio. So, of course, they did have more money and more time when you're making movies. But for a TV series where you have to, you have to, it has to be done by a certain time. So each episode can be on air, on time. So, so yeah, the limited budget and the limited time. So, so the animation wasn't up to movie standards, but it was still great for TV. It also mentioned that it was assumed that Star Trek fans would not accept substitutes or inaccuracies. Which is so true. I mean, they knew it even we, back then. <laughs> yeah, we they know we're crazy, and we look for the details. So they were able to sign the original actors, all except for Walter Koenig. Just and they said that's just because they couldn't afford to to have Chekhov, just to, trying to to stay within their budget. And they said that this was actually one of the most expensive animated shows back then that was made. Makes sense because they had to hire numerous voice actors, whereas other animated shows. They had relatively unknowns. They probably had three per show doing a variety of voices. But this, to get the original Star Trek actors, was fantastic. It seems like Filmation had their own actors. That Like the, like the same actors were just about on every Filmation show. But, but, but this was Star Trek that was already established and, and already had voices that we already knew. So it was great that they could they could get all those actors to sign on. The closest thing that I could think of in the animation world around this time period was Animated Batman, which had Burt Ward and Adam West. But again, that's two people. Right. I, I mean, yeah, and Star Trek had such a large cast, really. I mean, and to do for animation, and they actually um, brought them on. It, but it's good that at least they were able to pay them to do, like, to do other parts, like James Doohan did other voices besides Scotty, and Nichelle Nichols also did other voices besides Uhura. So they were able to pay them for other parts, too, which was good. And because we were lacking Walter Koenig, it pushed creativity. And we have a new character, Lieutenant Arex. Well, he he was voiced by Scotty, wasn't he? By, by James Doohan. Yes, but it was, it was neat to have, to even have new characters that were part of the crew and, and new aliens because they could have more aliens because it was a cartoon. So they had RX and then they also had Mares as a communications officer sitting there sometimes instead of Uhura. So I, I love the animated series of this era. And this article actually it says it's coming out at the time when uh, when it was just announced that the animated series would be put into syndication. So th- I mean, that was great, too. It, so they finally realized this show is popular enough that they can just start showing reruns of it everywhere. And there were only 22 episodes, but they could still do it because it was a cartoon. I was watching this in reruns in the late 70s, early 80s. It was still yeah. being repeated on Saturday mornings. So it it was a staple. It was. It was, it, it was still... It became pretty popular then, and I think it kind of got a bum rap for a while, but it's coming back now. It's it's more popular now, especially now that we've got the new animated series, Lower Decks, too. And and on Lower Decks, we have to say, they they re- refer to some of the animated series. Having um, Annie Dojan, the same race as, as Rx. Very true. Continues on to have a complete episode guide of Star Trek Animated. Which these Star Trek uh, and uh, episode guides were incredible for the time. 
Yeah, I always loved episode guides in Starlog because you couldn't get them anywhere else. And it was great to see that. And, and you know, and I used to mark the ones I've seen so I could look for the ones that I haven't seen. And did you notice there's a picture in there? where They put the, the serial number, NCC1701, on one of the nacelles. Did you notice that? Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I Which see they could mm-hmm. like they didn't do that on the um, on the original series. Hmm. Interesting. But on the cartoon, they could put it on an SL. That was neat. Advertisement for Starfleet Command Incorporated presents a fantastic new line of quality Star Trek items: phasers, tricorders, communicators, perfect full-scale replicas of the originals used in Star Trek. In fact, they're better than perfect, because the chief engineer at Starfleet Command has found a way to make them all work. Flashing indicator lights, completely self-contained authentic sound effects, and working controls. So this is Starfleet Command out of Burbank, California, selling right, that mock-up was just, props. So Starfleet Command must have been the name of a company. It was just a merchandising company. And they must have been affiliated with Star Trek, because if they had the rights to to sell props that, that look like they are on the show, and if it actually said Star Trek. Out of Burbank. Yeah. So they must have had access to maybe some of the original ones, too. Yeah, that would be neat. Yeah, so so you could just buy your own. Well, of course, yeah, these have been sold for years. Tricorders and communicators and phasers. State of the Art, a column of opinion by David Gerald. Now, this is interesting because David Gerald was known for going to Star Trek conventions on a regular basis. He was one of the writers that really drew a crowd. I mean, we, we've seen him at Con before, and he does have stories. He has a lot of stories. It's fun to see him at Con's because he's a real Star Trek fan, and he can talk about the original series because he was there, and he can he can tell all these great stories. Well, he mentions there was a convention a few years back, and there was a little old blue-haired lady who came up to me and asked, where do you get these science fiction crazy ideas? So people in the audience thought it was strange that she would ask a question like that, and he responded with, from the official science fiction writer's ideas book. And apparently she didn't realize he was being snarky, She thought it was a real book. And he went on to say that didn't you know that Robert Heinlein wasn't the first to write Stranger in a Strange Land? Harlan Ellison and Philip K. Dick both tried to do it before he did, but neither of them could finish it. So what do you think of that, David Gerald goofing on fans at a convention to the point where the entire audience is realizing that the person asking the question is pretty much being goofed on? This was a funny story. Yeah, it was entertaining. So, so yeah, he he's putting her on, and she doesn't know it. And the thing is, he and he can tell that she's uh, she's new to science fiction. I mean, she's some old lady who thinks that science fiction is weird. Most of the other fans in the audience, you know, get it. They wouldn't ask like, "Where do you get your crazy ideas?" Because they don't think it's crazy. So my question is, why are you there then? I know. I mean, <laughs> so she's just someone who who just wanted to see what all this, what all this strange stuff is about, and so he makes up this idea that there's a book of science fiction ideas, and and when you write any, he was telling her when you write a science fiction story, the idea has to be from this book, but they do take contributions to the book, and he, you know, I think, and he was you just making it up as he goes. Once you, once you say you're going to write this story. You have a time limit, and that's why these other writers didn't finish writing it out within the time limit. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so, and he just kept going on and on. I mean, she was going, she was acting like she was so amazed, and it it gave him impetus to just keep making things up. Yeah, it was hilarious. Star Trek Report, a fan news column by Susan Sackett. I first heard the word fan when I was eight years old. My best friend Diane said she was starting a Johnny Ray fan club and asked me to join. She would be the president, of course, and I would be a member. So it talks about being a fan, and once you're a fan, you really have to know a lot of things and research things, especially when you're part of a fan club or you're heading a fan club. Well, you don't have to, but you want to, right? 
Well, if you're heading it, I imagine so, because at that time, you're writing regular reports and newsletters and mailing things out. And she said that, today I live in California. Now I answer calls from Connecticut and letters from New Jersey and all kinds of communications from states and countries. My daily life is almost totally devoted to fans. These are wonderful people who inexhaustibly fascinated with stars and facts about the Star Trek series and recently the future Star Trek movie. And I just think this is, I can't say it enough because it keeps getting repeated at conventions erroneously that the Star Trek movie came because of Star Star Wars. You know, this, right. this has been in the plans before Star Wars. This movie got pushed ahead faster because of Star Wars, but there was always an idea for a Star Trek movie. And Star Trek The Motion Picture became the first time ever a TV series went to motion picture. We know it went backwards before. We know that motion pictures became television series, but never before Star Trek did a series become a motion picture. And that's what she says here, because and, and that they were treading new ground in doing that. Yes. Now, did, that also said that she was originally in Connecticut as a child. That's true, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So yeah. I grew up in Hamden and Woodbridge, Connecticut, so only a half hour away. Wow. Vinnie Vincent grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, okay. former KISS guitarist. Maybe Vinnie Vincent and Susan Sackett were friends. They could have been. <laughs> <laughs> so a question that comes her way. Who is writing the Star Trek movie? Star Trek The Motion Picture, that is the working title. So at this time, it wasn't The God Thing in 1977. Well, I think The God Thing was the name of Gene's script. Okay. So they did have Motion Picture as a working title. And it was scripted by two British writers, Chris Bryant and Alan Scott. Well, I think, she, wasn't she saying here that they, they were just hired, right? That's right. But it was a start. And so we, we know that they're, that, that they're not the ones who wrote the movie script. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll get to see in the future Starlog what happened to them. And she does mention that they were not science fiction writers, but they watched every episode and they were working closely with Gene Roddenberry. Well, I'm glad it went the direction of Gene being more involved instead of less involved, just working with him. So a lot happened within two years. Yeah, a lot of changes and people going in and out. But but because we, we also know of Gene's reputation now of not getting along with the writers, so he might have pushed them out after a while. Okay, this is an interesting question, and we got to remember it's early 1977. Has anyone in the cast been signed? William Shatner, despite rumors to the contrary, has not officially been signed, although negotiations with him are proceeding smoothly, and he is definitely interested in being in the picture. Leonard Nimoy is also interested in doing the movie, but is not yet signed because of some merchandising clauses which yet have to be resolved. What do you think about that? That's pretty astounding. <laughs> but, well, the thing is, I think most of the actors wanted to do it just because they needed the money. But but Leonard Nimoy didn't need the money as much because he, he had other work. And whatever merchandising they're talking about, I'm sure it has to do with Spock and the years and Leonard and he had, wasn't sure he, he wanted to do it. always had the most merchandising because I'm looking at motion picture. The only one that had a liquor decanter was Mr. Spock. I mean, Mr. Spock arguably is the face of Star Trek. Yes, he's so the he one wanted who's a cut. different. Yes, and and so Leonard wanted. I mean, of course, he wanted the money, and yeah, he wanted to know like how much he would probably how much he would get paid for his face to be on those things. So yeah, you can imagine him holding out for more money, especially when when he didn't need it as much as the others did. And and we know that when they made the movie, at first they had the the uh, go ahead to do it without Leonard, and that's why he wasn't in the first part of the movie. That's right, and it does mention that they hope to get all of the original cast back. Addition, two new parts are being written for leads, a male and a female. So, even early on, we knew that there was going to be... Look at Phase 2. Some of these parts were written for Phase 2. So I'm guessing that they were going to try and bridge some of what they were developing for Phase 2 into this script. Well, that's right. And remember, they also had Lieutenant Zahn, because they... You know, they weren't sure about Leonard Nimoy, so they created a new Vulcan exactly. for that. Um, but but also what's interesting here is when they said that it's going to have a new male and female character, it said that they were going to be played by major stars. 
That's what Susan said there, but we know it didn't really turn out. Because Persis, I think this was her first acting job. That's right. When will production begin? Answer. The script will be completed by March 1st and subject to approval by Paramount Studios. Construction of sets, props, models, and costumes will begin shortly after that date. Principal photography should commence around August of 1977. We are now aiming at a release date of July 4th, 1978. Yeah, so, I mean, like, everything takes time. Yeah, a July 4th, 1978 airing? And we know it got pushed back from that. Exactly. Go figure. Question, why is it taking so long to get this film going? That is a good question, because this has been talking for years. Here's her answer. Well, there are several reasons. First of all, the successful translation of a television show to a motion picture has never been accomplished, which we mentioned already. And there are so many people along the way that have to green light it. So if you can imagine what it was like to, to have this idea presented to Paramount of something that's never been happened before... Because during that time period, movie stars were considered movie stars. Television stars, for the most part, were considered lesser stars. Even though they still were probably just as well known. But but yeah, the movie star salary was more. Will there be many changes on the Enterprise sets? The answer is, as none of the original sets and props survived after the television series was canceled, everything will be have to be built from scratch. The Enterprise will undergo a facelift. The exterior will be the same Famira Enterprise, and basically you will recognize her interiors. They will be bigger and greatly updated to reflect new scientific concepts. Well, that is true. And and I love the refit Enterprise. Yeah, they did make it different but familiar. It, it, was, it was close enough to the original that you could tell. That, that it was the same ship, but it was still different. It was it was updated, and and they had to do that for the for the movie screen anyway, because it would be shown in much greater detail on the movie screen. She mentions, "What can you do, the fan, to help get the picture made? First of all, you can help by watching this column in each issue of Starlog. Here, you will get accurate information, not rumors." Well. That is so true. Didn't she say something like, "Don't write letters because don't call." They, she can't. She can't keep up with They don't have time, them. right? They, yeah. They're making a movie. They don't, have, and they they know that they're doing it, so you don't have to write letters saying you want the movie because they're they're already making the movie. But isn't this the same as today? There are so many rumor websites and rumors that are posted online that are either hateful or totally false. We'll get the information when we get the information on New Trek. But at this time, what have we said many times before? Starlog was our internet. So this was the internet for Star Trek fans. That that was how we got our info. We'll close out by mentioning this advertisement. Star Trek special offer. Original hand-painted cells are now available. And they're hand-painted cells of popular scenes from Star Trek, the animated series. Well, a cell was what they called uh, part of their artwork when they were doing an animated series. That's right. Short for celluloid. So they were only $20 each and $1.50 for postage and handling. They had pictures of the Enterprise, pictures of aliens, pictures of the crew. Absolutely beautiful. Great trip down memory lane by reading these issues of Starlog. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program for The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast. And then the second mention, again, love letter to TNG, when Archer and Tripp are sharing their scotch, and then Archer says, well, here's to the next generation. And I was like, oh!
Why are there so many nods in this episode for TNG fans like Amy to be like, oh my God, yeah, next year. Yeah. They had movies and everything. They just had a film three years before or two years before. And yet I'm here as an ent- Enterprise fan waiting for something. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. Give me, anything. give me anything that makes me feel like, oh yeah, four years of Enterprise. Loading Sweet preview program for There Are Four Questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I feel like they're starting to open it up to a lot of people. And I think that we need, uh, like, young people, we're, we're, the, we're the future. Like, you're the future. You, you can dictate how you want to change the world. And if you feel like you want to be whatever you want to be, don't ever let anybody tell you that you can't. Because you can do whatever you want. You know, and I, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, don't give up because you never know what you can do until you do it. Loading Sweet preview program for Ladies Trek Library, women with a passion for Star Trek books. Diane Duane, as a female writer, had to put in, which I liked, having a, a female in command, you know, a Klingon, because um, we, we don't see that as much as the Klingons, with the Klingons. No, um, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the Klingon landing party, the head of the Klingon landing party was a woman. And in the original series, we didn't really, did we even see, I don't think we saw any female Klingons in charge at all. Um, and even in the next generation. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.